Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, at the beginning of our sermon this afternoon, I want you to imagine the following scene. Imagine for a moment a notorious criminal is brought before a judge here in Winnipeg. He has terrorized the city with crimes of theft and murder, and the evidence is overwhelming that this man has consistently broken the law. As the trial nears the end, everyone expects a life sentence to be handed down, and maybe multiple life sentences. Yet, lo and behold, what does the judge do? To the shock of everyone, he pronounces the criminal not guilty. In fact, he even goes further than that. He bestows on this lawbreaker the honor of citizen of the year. Now, what would you think of such a scene and such a judge? Well, most likely you would get angry. We talked about anger a bit this morning, how we're to be slow to anger, but maybe this is one time where it's fitting to be angry. This is an injustice. The judge has probably been bought. Lock that criminal, criminal up and throw away the key. But do you know what the most shocking thing about this scene is? This is essentially what God does when he justifies you and me. He declares people who have consistently broken his law to be not guilty. And he bestows upon wicked sinners the status of righteous. To that we might wonder, well, how could that be possible? Especially when God says in places like Numbers 14, he will by no means clear the guilty. I mean, this just shocks all of our categories of thinking. Is this right? But this is part of the wonder of the gospel. And because it's at the heart of our salvation, we need to understand it clearly and to deal with any objections that arise against this wonderful teaching. Not only so that we can guard against error, but also so that we can rejoice in our salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. So that brings us to the sermon theme this afternoon, which is as follows. Justification is not by our own works, but by the work of Christ alone. We're to look at three things. First of all, the righteousness needed to come before God. Second of all, the rewards God gives for our good works. And finally, the root of our own righteous living. So today we are continuing our study of our justification before God. Now, justification is a big word. What's it all about? Well, justification is a legal term. God is king of the earth, and as king, he has laws, and everyone on earth is duty-bound to follow those laws. As king, he is also judge. He punishes the wicked, and he commends the righteous. And so justification is all about being declared righteous by God, the judge, and king. But how does this happen? Well, I'm going to first describe how the average person might typically think about justification. And just to be clear, what I'm, what I'm about to describe to you is an error. 
So people might think that in justification, we try really hard to keep God's law, and then when we mess up, Christ is there to cover up our failures by his work. More of a filling in the gaps type of idea, where through our work and the work of Christ, we are together then uh, counted as righteous. Sort of like if you needed to pay someone $100, but you only had 70 so someone else gives you $30 to cover the rest. Let me emphasize again, this is a wrong way of thinking when it comes to justification. But it's good to ask, why might errors like this sound convincing to our hearts and to our ears? What's at the bottom of it? Well, consider the following reasoning people might use. Don't we need to be righteous in order to come before God? And the answer is yes. Yes, we do. Or this, isn't it important that Christians live according to God's righteous commands? And the answer is yes, it certainly is. Or this, doesn't Scripture speak about people pleasing God by their works? And again, again the answer is yes, it does. In fact, we'll look at that more in detail later on. Or maybe this, Well, are Christians permitted to live in sin unrepentantly? To that, we would say, no, absolutely not. Let me emphasize for you, yes, Christians do aim to live righteous lives. And where we do fail in our obedience, we do seek forgiveness through Christ's work. But all of those things do not mean that our works contribute to our justification before God. How God counts us righteous in his sight. What does God do in our justification? Well, he does what we learned last week in Lord's Day 23. Although I myself have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and I'm still inclined to all evil. Yet God, out of mere grace, imputes to me or counts to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, and he grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. In short, we are counted righteous not by our works whatsoever, but only on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. Well, that's, of course, wonderful news. In fact, it's fantastic that questions about this might persist. Listen only to one that Lord's Day 24 brings up. Why can our good works not be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of it? To understand this, why our works do not contribute to our justification, we need to understand three things. We need to understand God's justice. We need to understand our sinful condition. And we need to understand the concept of reconciliation. And we're going to go briefly through these three concepts. So God's justice, our sinful condition, and what it means to be reconciled to God, how that happens. 
So why can our good works not be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of it? Lord Day 24 answers that question by pointing us to God's justice, His perfect justice. Because the righteousness which can stand before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of God. Whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. Think of those words I quoted in the introduction from Numbers 14. That God will by no means clear the guilty. So what does that mean? It means that in order for God to justify someone, there must be not one speck of guilt. After all, that's how a good judge makes judgment. He declares people not guilty who are actually not guilty. And that means having no sin whatsoever. But I hope you can see that presents immediately a massive problem for us given our sinful condition. The second thing we have to understand. King David was one man who understood this massive problem. That's why he prays to God in Psalm 143 verse 2. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. No one living is righteous before you. You see, sin is not just something we do. It's something we are. We are not sinners primarily because we do bad things. Rather, we do bad things because we are sinners. We should see sin more as a condition. And out of that condition comes evil deeds. Think of it like having a cold in relation to sneezing and coughing. You don't have a cold because you sneeze and cough, even though those are the main things we associate with a cold. Rather, you sneeze and cough because you have the cold. The virus is inside of you, and it's producing miserable symptoms. In the same way, you do sinful deeds because you have the condition of being sinful. Sinful deeds are the expression of the corruption inside of us. And so no one in that condition, which we are by nature, can be declared righteous by their own works. And no one in that condition can reconcile himself or herself to God. The third thing we need to understand, reconciliation. You see, people with a sinful condition, as we all do by nature, need to be reconciled to God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be reconciled to someone? Or what does reconciliation mean? Well, reconciliation is when two parties who were once fighting and once were enemies are brought into a relationship of friendship and peace. In reconciliation, the hostility between us and God is finally removed. And when we are reconciled to God, we're brought into a relationship of peace with God. Well, guess what? Because of our sinful condition, 
reconciliation with God happens only by the work of God in Jesus Christ alone. Given our sinful condition by nature, we would never be reconciled to God on our own. Even in part, we would always remain estranged from God. But Scripture makes clear that the basis of being brought into a right relationship with God again is only the work of Jesus Christ. Listen only to our reading from Colossians 1. It says, In Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Right? God came to save us. And through Him, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated from God and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's our sinful condition, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So notice in in these words that God works reconciliation. We don't. Furthermore, the changed relationship with God from hostility to peace happens only on the basis of Christ's finished work and not our own works. God has made peace between himself and us by the blood of the cross. As it says in Romans 5 verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son and this And this alone provides a basis for our justification, how God counts us righteous. We are righteous in Christ alone. That brings us to our second point. Now, given this is the case, that Christ's work is the only grounds for our justification and reconciliation with God, well, what does that mean for our works? And you hear that question arise in question and answer 63. There it says, But do our good works earn nothing, even though God promises to reward them in this life and the next? And looking at all the scriptures, we do have to admit that God does reward people for their good works. Think of Psalm 128, which we sang from earlier Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. And we could cite many more examples. Does our confession of justification by the work of Christ alone mean we need to ignore those passages? The answer, of course, is no. We have no problem saying that God does reward our good works. But what then do we need to guard against? It's the idea that our good works earn something, that they merit something with God. To see this again, we need to take into account all of Scripture's teaching. Just listen to the Lord Jesus in Luke 17. He says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? 
The answer is no. So he says, so you also, when you have done all that was commanded you, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. See, we can never boast in what we do. We're unworthy servants. When we do good works, we are merely doing our duty. Any reward God gives is not because we have merited anything. Instead, it's a gift of grace. Oh, I think that's clear enough. But this afternoon, I want to look at this from a slightly different angle. Related to the matter of God rewarding good works is the matter of pleasing God with our lives and with our works. Sometimes we might think it's wrong to speak about pleasing God by our good works, and maybe even dangerous. Why might we think that? Well, just think of question and answer 62. It says, even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. So we might think, well, if something's defiled with sin, how could it ever please God, who's holy? Now, it's true, we want to keep our works out of our justification. We can never reconcile ourselves to God. But Scripture teaches us that once we have been justified and therefore reconciled to God, we can please Him with our good works, even though they still remain defiled with sin. We read that too from Colossians 1. It was in that prayer of Paul. He, would ask, he asked that the Colossians would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work. Right? We can please God with our good works. Or 1 Timothy 5, the widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own households and to make some return for their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So let me ask again, how is this possible? If our best works are still defiled with sin, how could they possibly please the Lord? Well, it's because Christ has changed our relationship to God. We were once enemies of God, and God was simply our judge. Christ has made us his children, and God is now our Father in Jesus Christ. And it's in the context of this relationship, a father-child relationship, that our good works are pleasing to our Father, imperfect though they may be. Yes, they are still defiled with sin, but God delights to see you, His children, growing in obedience to Him, even if that obedience is still imperfect. And it pleases God to see you, His children, applying yourself to good works, to His praise, imperfect though they may still be. You know, this is a very liberating or, or freeing truth and concept. You know, think of the opposite for a moment. Think of a child in a situation where his parents are never happy at what he does, no matter how hard he tries. The parents demand perfection. So even if the child tries his best, he doesn't do things perfectly and meets with a frown and scolding from his parents. 
well, what's going to happen to that child in that situation? Sooner or later, he's just going to give up. What's the point in trying? My best is never going to be good enough. I'll never please my parents, and so I might as well just act out. But beloved, this is not how God deals with us, his children. Let me emphasize that again. This is not how God deals with us, his own children. But we might wonder, well, really, doesn't God demand perfection? Well, sure, in terms of our justification, God demands perfection. He's the righteous judge. But guess what? He's already gotten perfection through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. We no longer need to fulfill the law in order to be justified and so receive eternal life. Christ has done that for us. So this frees us to just serve the Lord and to aim to to please God in all things, even though we do it imperfectly. You see, you no longer need to worry about whether or not your good works are perfect. You can just do them. Yes, we aim for perfection. But now we can just focus on our neighbor and serving the Lord. Because we are already righteous in Christ, we can now freely serve our neighbor in love. We can do it because we want to please our Father. And that is a great motivator to to do good works, to live for God. You know what? You might never receive praise and recognition from people for the good things that you do. Maybe no one ever gives you any recognition for all the good things you do. But that, in the end, doesn't matter. Don't let that discourage you. Know for certain that your Father in heaven, He sees them all. And He's pleased with them. Isn't that wonderful to think about? God is pleased with the good works you do in Christ, even though they are imperfect. And may that spur you on to please God in all things. That brings us to our final point. Now, looking at we, what we just did already takes us into the last thing we will look at, the motivation to do good works. Now, Lord's Day 24 ends with another common objection to the doctrine of justification. It says, does this teaching not make people careless and wicked? And you can understand the logic behind the question. If our good works don't count towards our justification in any way, aren't we going to, to suck out any motivation to do good works? And won't people just embrace a life of sin? In some ways, this logic is confirmed by our experience in everyday life. Think back to the illustration I gave in the introduction to this sermon. The judge declares the criminal not guilty. And even though, even citizen of the year, though he has consistently broken the law. When the criminal is released from the court, what's he going to do? Well, we know that he's just going to keep on living his life of crime. In fact, he might even get bolder because he suffered no punishment for his deeds. Doesn't the same thing happen for the believer if this is how God declares us righteous, 
even though we're still sinful in ourselves? But the answer is simply no. This logic does not apply when God justifies wicked people and declares them righteous. Why is that the case? Well, we can cite a few reasons. The first reason has to do with the conviction of sin. No one will truly come to Christ for justification and salvation unless they are convicted of their own sin and God's punishment upon sin. We first need to know our sin if we're going to actually seek salvation in Christ. And that's one reason why the first part of the catechism deals with our sin and misery. We need to know that first. But someone convicted of his sin and God's judgment upon sin also knows two things. He knows he needs saving by the grace of God completely or he is in trouble. And God, in his grace, does save us by mercifully justifying us. But that same person who is convicted of sin at the same time knows that he can no longer remain living in his sin, in his old way of life. If you are truly convicted of sin and keep living in it, you're going to go crazy. That's why in order to embrace sin, people try quiet their conscience by justifying their actions. So that's the first thing, conviction of sin. There's a more fundamental reason why this teaching does not encourage people to embrace more sin. Listen to question and answer 64. Does this teaching not make people careless and wicked? No. It is impossible that those grafted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Believers are grafted into Christ. This refers to our union with Jesus Christ. Believers are in Christ, as Scripture says. We're joined to Him by faith. You saw that in Colossians 1, where it talks about Christ being the head and we as the body. We're joined together. And when we are connected to Jesus Christ in this way, what do we have? Well, being united to Christ means that what Christ has, we also have. We have the same righteous status Christ has. That's our justification. We are accepted by God as Christ is accepted by Him. We are adopted as children of God in Christ. We have a share in the eternal inheritance that Christ has. We have the same things He does. And being in Christ also means where Christ is, we are too. Christ has been raised from the dead, and we are now already are raised with Him. Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and we are seated with Him in the heavenly places. Christ has access to God, and we do too. Where Christ is, we are too. Those are benefits we have through our union with Christ. But what does someone who is grafted into Christ also have? They have a new nature. They've been made new. They've been made spiritually alive. 
Christ is in us. That's what we saw from Colossians 1. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And just as someone who is physically alive will live as though they are physically alive, so we too who are now spiritually alive in Christ will live as people who are spiritually alive. And that means living a new life of obedience to God according to his commandments. It's impossible that someone who is alive in Christ would continue to live as though they are still dead in sin. Don't get me wrong. True believers can fall into sin and fall badly. Scripture gives those examples too. But as those who have what we do have in Christ, the life of Christ will be revealed in our lives as we live by faith. Amen. Let us respond to the preaching of God's word by singing together hymn 35, stanzas 1 and 2.